We're about to listen to a special show from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Because this is pre-taped and not live, we can't accept any calls. But send us your thoughts to talk at steinershow.org. Here's our segment. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome to another one of our conversations on sustainability. We're going to talk now with Michael Pollan, who has written books like The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food. He wrote an open letter to President Barack Obama after he won the election about food policy in America and joins us for this hour to talk about all those things and maybe a bit more. And, Michael, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Mark. Good to be back. So it's, it really is interesting here, this, uh, this letter that you wrote to President Obama. I, was, I read that a few times over the last couple of days. I'm really fascinated by it. I think. Well, you know, it was actually written to the uh, to both candidates. To both candidates. I, I, I'm sorry. I published it in October, but it's very interesting. Everybody remembers it as the letter to Obama. I <laughs> see, because he was the one who responded to it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And and now the one who has to respond to it, if you will. We'll go through some of the ideas that you have in this letter and 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 some of the other things you've been talking about. But the idea that I remember the, how how hard you fought and were involved in trying to create a different kind of farm bill that was voted on in 2008 that comes up again in what? I think it might be 2012. 2012. Yeah. 20, I think you're right, yeah. 2012. Because that in, really may, in many ways is the key to this whole discussion, is it not? Well, it is. It's a really central piece of legislation. And if, you're, if you really are you know, intent on reforming the food system, you're going to have to take a look at the farm bill because it affects you know, everything from uh, – uh, subs- crop subsidies to uh, environmental cleanup to uh, – you would be amazed at how much is in that bill. And it affects you know, millions of acres of the American landscape too. So um, yeah. And you know, there was a big effort to, to uh, get some substantive reform. Um, and there were some reforms that were achieved. But by and large, it is uh, business as usual or agribusiness as usual farm bill uh, in terms of – particularly in terms of the crop subsidies that were in the end untouched. Um, which just tells us, you know, that this movement is young and, and we've got a long way to go. I think that we may have uh, an opportunity in the next farm bill. Um, that, so I, I'm actually guardedly optimistic about the future. Let's talk about the history here, though. What happened to America and why agriculture changed so drastically? Talk, talk a bit about the history of what, where, where we've come to in agriculture and how we got to where we are now. Yeah, well, modern agriculture, you know, you can you can date it to World War II, although, you know, some of the key inventions predate it, like mm-hmm. hybrid seed and uh, chemical fertilizer and things like that. But after World War II, you have this kind of conversion to peacetime use of some technologies that were invented for the war effort. One is nitrogen fertilizer, which is used in bomb making, um, ammonium uh, nitrate, which we learned in Oklahoma City, you know, you can m- turn fertilizer into pretty lethal bombs. And pesticides, which were most of which were developed as nerve gases, uh, a research program that we conducted during World War II and before. And so you had the peacetime conversion of these technologies, and um, this led to uh, a range of effects. Um, those two technologies are really what you need to move to these vast, highly efficient, highly productive monocultures uh, of uh, corn and soy and um, uh, wheat and rice and 
you know, such that you didn't see that. Before World War II, your average farm in the Midwest would have, you know, 12 or 14 different crops. It would have some, uh, you know, areas left in perennials, pastures, because there were animals on the farms. But after you move to this highly concentrated commodity crop system, suddenly you get these crises of overproduction. You've got lots of farmers. They get more productive every year, and they're getting a strong incentive from the government to plant corn and soy and um, and to um, basically maximize a couple crops and not do these other things. And so as the, as the prices of what they're growing goes down, which it will uh, over time, most commodities go down in price because people get better at producing them, you suddenly had this uh, wave of animals uh, being sucked off the farm, in effect, and put onto feedlots because the feedlot operators could buy feed for less than it cost the farmers to produce it since it was subsidized. So that's another effect that happens. You have you basically have you concentrate the animals over here and you concentrate the, the crops over there and that leads to a whole set of, of, uh, of other difficulties. So this industrialization of, of, of agriculture and we, we need to celebrate its achievement too because as, as many problems as it has caused, we do need to remember that it solved the problem it set out to solve which was to say put lots of cheap calories on the American plate. And if, you know, now our public health problem is obesity and type 2 diabetes and heart disease, but you have to remember that going back before World War II, you had a lot of hunger in this country. You had people who simply needed more calories. So we designed our agricultural system to give us what we needed. What's changed today is our needs. And so in the same way, our farmers brilliantly responded to those incentives and gave us lots of cheap calories of both meat and uh, you know, processed foods of all kinds. We now need to realign our agricultural policies with what is uh, you know, the new public health need, and that's certainly not quantity of calories. Since our economy, our agricultural economy at the moment is based on industrial agriculture, is based on large corporations um, kind of having – subsidizing smaller farmers to raise their crops and their chickens and beef for them. And that's how farmers for the most part make their living in America, working for mm -hmm. Monsanto or Purdue or whoever that may be. Yeah, working for sometimes literally but but other times metaphorically, yeah. Metafor yeah, metaphorically in many ways. But they – but that is how they make their living. So the question that some people are wrestling with here – and I'm, let's explore this for a minute before we go back to the heart of your work – is that can farmers – make a living, remaining farmers but doing it in a different way. In other words, people are subsidized by large industrial corporations to grow the food and that we eat of all kinds and f industrially grow things like corn and soybeans for, for, man for, for the industrial world as well. So can that shift? Can it really logically shift? Can these people make a living doing what they do in a different way? Well, you have to look at the living they're making now. Um, you know, you talk to a chicken producer who's got a couple chicken houses and has a deal with Purdue or, or uh, Tyson. They're not making much money. They're really struggling and their expenses go up every year and the price that they receive from the companies, they have no power over. They don't – these are not negotiated prices. Um, so this is not a very good living. The most successful – many of the most successful farmers today are in fact uh, – have in fact checked out on that system and they are growing directly for consumers. Um, you know, the farmer I profile in Omnivore's Dilemma, Joel Salatin, 
who grows for the local market. Uh, he, I mean, he has a kind of diversified marketing scheme, but he does um, – some of his stuff ends up in farmer's markets in Washington. Most of it is sold off the farm or sold to restaurants in Charlottesville. And he has these metropolitan buying clubs that I think reach all the way to Baltimore um, and where he brings a monthly shipment to a group that's – of, of, of uh, you know, families that have organized to, uh, to make it worth his driving there. These farmers are the ones making a really healthy living today. Um, they're not they're not price takers. They get to set their own prices. They're selling quality rather than quantity, uh, which is always a better market. I mean, being in a commodity market is just a death march. Um, you know, sooner or later, someone will undercut you if your product is not differentiated. And everyone in business understands this. Farmers less well than some others. The farmers who have uh, distinguish their their produce uh, based on its quality by doing something a little better, a little different, are the ones who are making a good living. Can they all switch over? Yeah, well, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, if everybody became an artisanal food producer, um, artisanal food would be a, become a commodity. So, you know, it's, it's right for some farmers and not for others. You have to have a certain slightly different skill set, I think, to thrive in this new food economy. You have to be a marketer. You have to understand the consumer and know how to talk to the consumer. And a great many farmers, you know, they have not sold food to an eater in years. They're dealing with the man. You know, they're dealing with ADM or the grain elevator or Tyson. And so they have lost that connection with the eater at the end of the food chain. And so they're not getting that feedback on what really tickles the eater and gets them excited about a product. So... You know, for farmers who are marketers or are people people who, who, who understand how to tell a story about what they're doing, there are amazing opportunities right now, and they're only going to get bigger. Well, when you talk about uh, – again, let me juxtapose this artisanal farmer with the other farmers in America who are growing everything else. The, the reason that those farmers on a small scale can make a living and do what they do is because they sell directly to us, as, we, as you just said. On yeah, some they level. capture 95% of the food dollar instead of, you know, 5% of the food dollar. One of the things the consumer's that, food dollar. Exactly. And one of the things that Earl Butts did under President Nixon, as you write about, was to create a system of what for us, the consumer, became inexpensive food, less expensive food, food that we could access. Yep. So the question I'm exploring here is can you can, – how does America make the bridge to – Remaining maybe not as cheap as it is now, but affordable food. I mean, if everybody cannot be an artisanal farmer, then how do you transform agriculture so that the majority of the population in America can afford and eat food that is healthy? Well, you have to do a whole bunch of different things. Uh, first of all, the industrial food system is not going to go away. Uh, even the people like myself who criticize it, um, you know, see that it's it's here to stay. Um, the model, I think, is to see it shrink and other food chains expand and get bigger. So I think one of the things we need to do, in the same way we need to diversify our fields uh, in the interests of, of health, uh, we need to diversify our economy too. And that so that alongside the supermarket, there will be the four-season farmer's market. So alongside industrially processed food will be easily accessible local food and not just in wealthy areas but throughout the city. 
So I think that, you know, that is the model I see, is that we nourish these alternative food chains to the extent we can. We localize the food system to the extent we can. It, you know, we've lost a lot of very important farmland near our cities. You know, New Jersey can no longer feed New York City as it once did. It used to be the Garden um, State. It, and it still is. It's, that's what it still says on the license plate right, exactly. last time I checked. Right, um, it does. But, you know, you, you go to the Union Square Green Market and the farmers there have had to travel two, 300 miles because – the belt of good agricultural land around New York has been lost. Um, so, but that because you can't go all the way doesn't mean you shouldn't go as far as you can go. And um, so, how do you get there? Well, you support the growth of these local food systems. You have the government proc- uh, use its food buying dollars, which are immense. I mean, I'm talking about for schools, prisons, military bases, government offices. And spend a certain a couple points, two points, two percentage points, say, on local food, a food grown within a hundred or two hundred miles of that facility. That alone would stimulate so many people to get into local farming and 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 really revise these local revive these local rural areas. Um, and then on the other side is you have to take away the some of the subsidies of the system, of the industrial system. Now, I'm not saying we should stop subsidizing farmers. And I I think it's very important that we support farmers. Um, But I think that in the same way we gave farmers incentives to simply maximize production, because that's how we organized, especially, as you say, after Earl Butts, when we started paying farmers by the bushel for as much as they could grow. And they responded with incredible feats of production and yield. Um, we need now to change those incentives because our farmers are really talented. They will win the game however we set up the rules. So we need to change the rules. So what does that mean? Well, instead of rewarding farmers for quantity, we reward them for quality. We reward them for how much they diversify their farms. Let's say you get more money for every additional crop you have in your rotation. Let's say you get paid extra if you put in a uh, a cover crop over the winter, which would do so much for our waterways. Uh, right now, we leave land bare, and fertilizer runs off it into our waterways every winter. Let's reward them for sequestering carbon in the soil. I mean, you know, one of the most important things agriculture can do, and uniquely do, is take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil. This is what happens when we farm organically, and this is what happens when we farm with perennials rather than annuals. So let's take some of that cattle off of cornland. Uh, you know, instead of growing corn and soy on land and shipping the feed to the cows, let's put that back in grass and graze the animals right on it. And that will create new soil, which is to say, bring tons of carbon into the soil. So you see, we can redesign our subsidy system, pay the farmers exactly as much as we're paying them today, but get them to once again produce food in a way that contributes to public health, uh, as they once did. It just... Our public health problem has changed, and so our farming needs to change to address that. We're talking with Michael Pollan, uh, who has written books that many of you have read, The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, In Defense of Food. He joins us this hour as we continue our conversations on sustainability in America and how we can change the way we do things for the better. I I wonder, again, before we go back to some of the heart of what you've been writing, if you've ever heard of the work of um, Pamela Donald. She wrote the book Tomorrow's Table: Organic yes. Farming, oh, yeah. Genetics, Pamela Ronald. Yes. I'm Ronald. I mean Ronald. Yep. Pardon me. And and the future of food, genetics, and the future of food. What what do you think of her thesis and her work? And uh, she was on a show on our show just a couple of weeks ago. And it's 
usually an anathema for many people who think about organic food to also think about genetic farming, genetic engineering in the same breath. But she's actually a very unique thinker, I think, an interesting thinker. Yeah, and um, I, I'm familiar with her work, and she's a proponent of genetically modified food, and she makes the argument that it is, uh, it can be uh, sustainable. I guess my my response to that is, you know, show me the proof. Um, this is not what Monsanto is working on. Monsanto is working <laughs> on, you know, she may be working on it in her lab, mm -hmm. but but the, all the research. One of my big problems with with genetically engineered food is that. It is sold on the basis of extravagant promises. But you've got to look at what they actually do. And what they do is they sell lots of Roundup-ready crops uh, and a little bit of BT corn crops, BT crops. Those BT crops are ones that produce their own insecticide, and Roundup-ready are the ones that withstand Roundup uh, weed killer. This is what they do. Has this been a real contribution to sustainability? No. Um, it has not, as they imply, increased the yield of American farmers. Um, conventional breeding has done much more to raise yields over the last 20 years than GM, uh, which is kind of a wash on yield. Uh, under certain very narrow circumstances, a BT corn crop will yield about 4% more than a conventional crop would. But the gains in yield over 20 years is something like 20% for conventional breeding. So what have they done? Essentially, these two products allow farmers to make their monocultures bigger. They lessen the need for management on the farm. Um, if you can spray weed killer, if you can douse your fields with weed killer without worrying about killing your crops, you can grow more. You can have a bigger farm because it's easier. So this is, and, and same with the BT. If you don't have to worry about uh, an outbreak of European corn borer in the, you know, in the, in the back 40, um, because your BT crop is going to take care of it, you can have a bigger farm and not pay attention to the back 40 or any particular area. So essentially what GM has given us are bigger farms, bigger monocultures, which is exactly what we don't need. Now, they talk about feeding the world. They talk about raising the yield on American agriculture. They talk about drought-tolerant, disease-tolerant plants. Um, but, you know, that's – farmers have a term for this. It's called selling a pig in a poke, okay, <laughs> <laughs> which means selling you a pig that you can't see. Um, and, you know, let me see. Let, let, let's see what they can come up with. I mean, I'm open to the idea that there might be GM technologies that represent real progress, that solve real problems. But that is not what it's being used for now. It's sold to the wealthiest farmers – to make to grow the biggest possible monocultures. Right now, GM is a Band-Aid on monoculture, and monoculture is the big problem of agriculture. So if monoculture is the problem, and a lot of it is, is fueled by industrial farming, and the policies we've created in our agricultural policies, uh, and the agricultural bills that we pass all the time, which we'll come back to in a minute, how do we design an agricultural system that is based on polyculture, not monoculture in America. And maybe if you could just take us before we begin there, just for a second, describe from your perspective the difference between a polycultural agricultural system and a monocultural agricultural system. Sure. Okay. Well, let me give you an example. You know, people, when they hear poly uh, polyculture and diversified farming, they think of the, that small little precious five-acre, you know, farm that um, is, is perhaps supplying their farmer's markets with a bunch of vegetables. Let me give you a big example. Go to Argentina. The, farmers there, the farms there are bigger than our farms, five to 10,000 acres in land roughly comparable to the American Midwest. 
they have traditionally, and this is over the last 80 years or so, had this very interesting rotation where uh, it's an eight-year rotation where they, the, the, for the first five years, the, uh, the farms are essentially perennial grasses, uh, chosen very carefully, by the way, and planted. Um, and they graze cattle on those grasses rotationally, moving the animals around so that it's grazed um, uh, evenly and they don't let weed species grow up. And they produce off of that land and that, that setup uh, beef generally recognized as the world's best beef. After five years of that beef production, they plow that field, those fields, and plant grain. Um, and they do three years of grain. They might do uh, corn. They might do wheat. They might do soy. Oh, soy is not technically a grain. It's a legume. Um, and for those three years, they don't have to put down any fertilizer whatsoever. Why? Because the five years of cattle production has added so much fertility to the soil. I'm talking not just the, 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 the cow manure, although that's part of it, but the, the relationship of the cows and the grasses, the pulsing of the pastures. Where, because every time a cow harvests grass, the plant kills off some of its own roots because plants are always interested in keeping their roots and their shoots in a rough balance. So if you have, say, an 18-inch high grass plant and it gets trimmed down to 2 inches, it will take 16 inches of root and basically you know, cut it off and let it die. And what happens to that root is the soil life, the, 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 the fungi and the, the, um, uh, the bacteria and the earthworms will eat, consume those dead roots and turn them into a source of fertility, of uh, you know, nitrogen, humus, and, uh, and carbon in the soil. This is, where it's, this, is, this is how you get soil, by the way. So there is so much fertility in the soil that they can go three years without adding any ammonium nitrate to the soil at all. Um, the other thing they don't have to add to the soil are any weed killers because the kind of weeds that could survive in a pasture system, perennial weeds, can't survive in an annual system and vice versa. So they have this weed uh, control built into the whole system. And then they go back to another five years on uh, cattle. Now, sometimes when they're growing that grain, they let the cattle come harvest it if prices are low. But if prices are high, they sell it off the farm. So there's some economic security built into this, that the farm, farmer has a couple different options of what to do. He doesn't have to dump uh, low-priced commodities on the market. He can keep it on the farm and feed, use it to feed his cattle. So there's an example, eight-year rotation, three species of grain, and they do different grain every year. And uh, you've got the uh, cattle. And then, of course, you've got the hundreds of species in the, in the pasture. Um, and these things are manipulated or orchestrated in such a way that you produce a great deal of value without a lot of inputs. You don't need Monsanto. You don't need the fertilizer company. And um, uh, so this is, you know, this is how you might do it in the Midwest. Now, for, it, for us to adopt such a system here, we need to do a lot of research and figure out what are the best crops, what are the best grasses, and how to reorganize our system. It means taking animals off of feedlots and putting them back on farms, which would do wonders uh, for the environment. I mean, feedlots, as we learned during swine flu, you know, you concentrate animals in such, uh, you know, so intensely um, and compromise their immune system that you create a petri dish for new diseases. And we've just seen one of them explode upon the world coming out of Mexico. The conversation you just had with me and our listeners, have you ever had this conversation 
in Iowa, Nebraska, or North Carolina with pig farmers, corn farmers, and cattle breeders? And if you have, what has been their response? You know, yes and no. I mean, I've spoken in places like Iowa State in, in Ames, which is really kind of the capital of corn. And and you get a mixed response. I mean, I had a, I had some people walk out of a room where I was, you know, taking the name of corn in vain. But you also can engage. And you hear a few different things. You hear it's not practical. You hear I would lose my subsidies if I diversified. That's a very interesting. There is actually a law I'm under the Farm Bill. If you take subsidies for corn and soy and wheat and rice and cotton, you're not allowed to grow what are called specialty crops. Specialty crops is Farm Bill speak for food. Um, it's, it's fruits and vegetables. This is a right. specialty of our agriculture now. It used to be the centerpiece. Um, and, and indeed, that's a law we have to change. We, we make it very hard for farmers to diversify. If you take your land out of the corn program or the soy program, you can't often get it back in. So there's a real discouragement on, on, um, on experimentation. And a lot of farmers, too, have lost the skill set that allows them to uh, have animals on their farms. And by the way, we should say that, you know, a lot of farms are, farmers are happy to have gotten rid of animals. When you get rid of animals, you know, you can leave the farm. You can, you can have another job in town. You right. can Take a vacation. go to Florida. You can, yeah, you can go to Florida in the winter. So it, it's important to acknowledge that for some farmers, this has been a boon. And that if you're, if you're growing corn and soy in the Midwest – you know, you can count the amount of work it takes in weeks, um, you know, to grow a year's crop. Uh, as farmers tell me all the time, it's just riding and spraying. And, and what happens there is that, you know, what do you do with the extra time? Well, the sad thing is most farmers have to take a job in town to support their farming habit. So, you know, so farmers don't see a way out of the box. But the most creative ones figure it out on their own. Or, and then there is a whole other group for whom when the government is encouraging them in this direction, they will move. When the land-grant colleges are developing the information farmers need, you have to realize that you know, our farmers are, are, are taught by input companies, companies selling them fertilizers and pesticides who give them lots of information about when you plant, when you fertilize, how much, you, how much pesticide you use. And the agricultural extension agents uh, from the land-grant colleges, all of whom are in this industrial mindset. So once you've changed the, the uh, research arm of American agriculture and you are promoting these alternatives to the industrial regime, such as, let's say, an eight-year rotation for the Corn Belt, um, you will find farmers feeling much more comfortable about trying it. So you have to change the marketplace, you have to change the research agenda, and you have to change the extension, I mean, the, the communication with farmers. And that's why you've got to drive these changes from Washington. We're talking with Michael Pollan, the author of books, The Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, and Eater's Manual, which I want to come to some eating issues here in a moment. But I, I want to stay with just for a little bit more, because I think that this is, to me, when we talk about how to practically change what we do in America, it, this is the hardest question about how you do this. One of the things you just said is if, is if I'm a farmer, and farmers have said this to me, look, I plant my corn, I get a subsidy, I'll put a cover crop in over the, over the winter, then I go back and I'm going to throw down more chemicals in the exact same field and grow this corn because that's where my money is. To change that, to be able to, to, to live 
in a polycultural agricultural way in society for people in the in rural areas. I mean, you, you have to change the ground rules for that to happen. So, the, I mean, A, that's the battle that has to take place by 2012, the agricultural bill. And B, the question many people say is, can I make a living that way? You're exactly right. And, you know, I mean, look, if the grain elevator is only buying corn and soy, you're not going to see a market. Um, you know, that these farmers, if they're going to change, need a signal from, from the economy. And, um, you know, simply introducing a third crop into the Midwest rotation, if we could get our farmers to grow flaxseed, for example, would have a dramatic effect, beneficial effect on, uh, on, their, on their economics and on the environment. But it's really hard to do. You have to re-engineer every grain elevator to take flaxseed. You have to build a market for it. Um, and, uh, but it has been done. People, you know, look, Canada did it. You know, they did it with canola. Um, they just decided we've got to, we want to have our own crop that the Americans aren't producing or aren't very good at. And we're going to support research into what used to be called rapeseed. And we're going to promote this as the new oil. Um, it's got certain health benefits that are, make it superior to soy oil. And they have a very successful canola. You know, they've added canola to their rotation all over Western Canada. Um, it takes work. It takes a commitment. Um, it takes research. And, um, but it's doable. Um, but the farmers are trapped in a system. And, and it's too much for us to ask them to drive the change from the farm. If you look at the food economy, you see something very interesting. We spend about $881 billion a year on food in America. You know how much of that ends up in the farmer's pocket? It's only about $69 billion of that. And of that, 14, between 12 and 14 billion come from the government check, from the subsidies. So these are not, this is not the power in the food system. <laughs> to give you an example, the people who make the packages that we buy our food in, the cellophane makers, the cardboard makers, the plastic makers, they're getting 79 billion out of this system. They're getting 10 billion more than the form than the farmers. So they even have more power than the farmers. So the change is going to have to be driven in this uh, in the space between the $69 billion going to the farmers and the $881 billion that we are spending at the register. To expect farmers to call the shots and say, we're moving sustainably, we're going polyculture, it, it, it ain't going to happen. It's going to have to happen further along in the economy with a real good push from the government. Consumers can take it some great distance, by the way. I don't, I don't want to minimize the importance of voting with your fork because what is happening now, the models that are being generated are coming from um, consumers basically hooking up with farmers and saying, this is what we want to eat. And farmers saying, look what we can grow. We can grow a really superior, you know, try these eggs. They cost three times more than what you're used to spending, but they're grown on grass, they're pastured, they're delicious. And, and, and consumers saying, hey, you know what? I like that. That's worth a little extra money. So that, that whole conversation is very important. It's generating new models. It's creating new markets. But to take it to the next level that you're really talking about, we're going to need that big push, and that's going to happen in the Farm Bill and also, by the way, in the Climate Change Bill. Um, that has enormous potential. If we can reward farmers for sequestering carbon and generating energy, clean energy on the farm, and penalize farmers who are are putting huge amounts of uh, carbon into the atmosphere and methane and, and uh, nitrous oxide, usually from feedlots. Um, if we can do those two things, carrots and sticks, that could move the whole agricultural system dramatically in the direction of uh, sustainability. 
Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break for more of my conversation with Michael Pollan, author of books such as The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, www.mecu.com. Hi, this is Mark Steiner. Just a reminder that the segment we're listening to is from our archives, so we can't accept any calls. Please send your thoughts to talk at steinershow.org. Now back to our segment. As part of our weekly focus on issues of sustainability, we're speaking with Michael Pollan. This man is to food sustainability what Al Gore is to climate change. He's been the leader in reshaping the national conversation about the consequences of what we eat. He's the author of best-selling books like The Omnivore's Dilemma, The Botany of Desire, In Defense of Food, and writes for the New York Times. He's also a professor of journalism at University of California, Berkeley. In one of the articles I read to prepare for this show, I learned how Michael Pollan observes meatless Mondays and wondered how successful he is in getting a 60-year-old son to observe that day with him. <laughs> my son has a real problem with meatless anything. My son is—he's at that age. He's sixteen and wants um, that protein. You know, still growing and is just loves protein. And it, it's—it's not a meal to him if if an animal didn't die in its preparation. Um, so we try every now and then. But you know, you—if you—if you bring—if you serve pasta, if you serve vegetables, if you do a stir fry without meat in it, he's like. When's dinner? <laughs> so it's a challenge. My wife and I are very happy to eat, you know, vegetarian many nights of the week. Um, but we often will be making him a little piece of meat to go with his. I'm trying to get him used to the idea of meat as a flavoring and, um, you know, that you can make a curry that has mostly vegetables and a few t- chunks of meat uh, and perhaps a little stock to flavor it. Um, but, you know, he, he he searches through it and pulls out all the meat. <laughs> So it's a challenge. Meat, I mean, meat is, feels like a birthright to Americans, it, it and, and increasingly yes. to uh, to people around the world. And that's that's a huge problem because the environmental footprint of meat is, you know, it's 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 the most it's it's our the biggest part of our carbon footprint. You know, vegetarian. If if you go vegetarian, you reduce your carbon footprint by twenty five percent by that act alone. I know. I mean, I hear it all the time because one of my producers is a vegan and the other one is a vegetarian and. You know, they're always hawking me about the way I eat, but I, but I, <laughs> I think that that this is another one of those leaps that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about agricultural policy, is this kind of worldwide now demand to eat like America eats, yeah. to eat beef and to eat beef as often as you can, and what has to take place to kind of change that mindset is a very difficult place to go. I mean, it's it's a very uphill battle. So, and I know you wrestled with that a lot. I mean, you write about it. And you're right about how we should be eating, but the question is, how do we get there again? You know, we get there by um, we're talking about a cultural shift. Um, we're talking about glamorizing uh, not eating meat. Um, you know, this is a culture of glamour, and um, what's cool is you know changes. You know, it's it's embarrassing now to drive certain cars of a certain size when it used to be cool um, because we understand the carbon footprint, and um, and you know we may feel the same way about a 16 ounce steak. But that may be as embarrassing to eat as as it is to drive a Hummer around town. And um, so, you know, how do we get there? Well, storytelling. Um, you know, uh, chefs. You know, when a restaurant like Chez Panisse moves to a meatless Monday, 
you know, here is a, you know, a temple of American gastronomy and that they show what they can do with vegetables one day a week, um, you know, it'll be the trend and, uh, and that, that'll be a good thing. And, um, uh, so, you know, I think we need to, um, uh, this is how cultural change happens. You know, it's a, it's a combination of, uh, leading by example and storytelling and, um, and information. I mean, you tied to all that is that you have this really interesting correlation between um, our health and the food system and health costs going up over the last uh, 40, almost 50 years and food costs going down in that same period of time. And the- Yeah. Well, that's an, that's an interesting uh, set of graphs um, because uh, as we've spent less of our income on food, we have spent more of it on health. And uh, to be more specific, in 1960, we spent 18% of our income on health, and uh, I'm sorry, on food, and 5% of our income on healthcare. Now it's kind of flipped. We're spending 9.5% of our income on food. It's dropped by half, and 17% of our national income on healthcare. Now a lot of that increase in healthcare spending can be laid at the door of uh, the American diet. Um, we, you know, chronic disease accounts for a tremendous uh, percentage of healthcare spending. I haven't been able to actually nail down the number, um, but the CDC does say that of the two trillion dollars we spend, we spend in this country on healthcare every year, one point five trillion is to treat what they call preventable chronic diseases. Now, that's not all food. Uh, because you've got smoking in there, which is very expensive, and you've got uh, the cost of al- treating alcoholism. Um, but the lion's share of it are food-related chronic disease, which is to say about 80% of the heart disease, 90% of the type 2 diabetes, 40% of the cancer, um, you know, and the high blood pressure and, and obesity, all the other costs of ob- obesity alone is $167 billion. So um, it's, you know... This phrase we hear, healthcare crisis, you could read that as diet crisis. Um, and that if we were eating in a different way, uh, we would not have a healthcare crisis. The challenge is getting, you know, the whole country to give up um, a, what is a very seductive, very convenient, um, very thought free and, and money free way of eating. And it is hard to get there. I mean, I think about it again, if you break it down and bring it to a very personal a more intimate level. I think you and I think I and many other people, when we go out to buy meat, you look for grass-fed, free-range meat. Or you go to a local farm or farmer's market to buy your vegetables. In that story, especially in larger audiences, that can become a very elitist conversation. Because the grass-fed meat is more expensive. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's uh, you know, it's a shame that that is the case. And it's something we have to work on. And that is something we have to address with policy. I mean, the reason grass-fed beef is more expensive, there are a couple of reasons. One is that there's a lot less of it. And so there aren't economies of scale. The farmers growing grass-fed meat have relatively small herds. Uh, the slaughterhouses where they get it processed char- um, do so much less processing that they have to charge more per animal. And the market is so strong that it's driving up the price. There are things the government could do to help make that meat more accessible. They could support small slaughterhouses, which they really don't right now. 
um, they could, uh, you know, give you incentives for taking land out of corn and soy and putting it into grass. They could reward you for. Right now, you can get money from the government to um, rip out cropland and put in grassland because it's so good for the environment. It cleans up the water and uh, builds soil and everything. But interestingly enough, you're not allowed to graze that land. Um, What's the logic there? The logic is, um, you know, historically grazing has been environmentally destructive when it's not done well. And we have a whole history in the West of, of, of public lands being badly grazed. And, um, and and also part of the reason we used to encourage farmers to put uh, cropland back into corn was to lower production. But my guess is it has to do with not competing with the, uh, the feedlot industry. And uh, so that's something we'll, else we have to look at. It's called conservation land. And we should be able to graze conservation land if we do it in a, in a very sustainable way, which is to say rotationally. You don't, you don't let the animals stay on the same land too long. So um, uh, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. Uh, I didn't, though. I think I remember what my question was. It, it had to do with how we take this away from – Oh, oh, make it the elitism question. Right. I'm sorry. So there, there, there are things we could do as a matter of policy to make that grass-fed beef, to make that grass-fed beef uh, more accessible. It is never going to be as cheap as feedlot beef, though. We have to understand that. And you know what? It shouldn't be. Feedlot beef only appears cheap. Uh, it, it costs the public health. It costs in antibiotics. We lose, we lose powerful antibiotics because we're squandering them on these feedlots. It costs in, in, in the cleanliness of the water. It costs in terms of the subsidies. It shouldn't be called cheap beef. It should be called freeloader beef um, because that's essentially what it is. Now, some people can only afford freeloader beef. It's true. And that is the, that's the hard part. A lot of people. But you can't expect the food system or the food movement to solve all the problems of society. If we're not paying people enough in their salaries to afford healthy food, there are problems up, up, upstream of the food system. I mean, we have moved into this Walmart economy. You know, it used to be under Fordism, as it was called, Henry Ford's idea, you pay your workers enough that they can afford to buy your cars, okay? This was a, a, a positive feedback loop. Well, we have something very different. We have this Walmart economy where we pay you so little, you can only afford our crummy food. And that's where we are. There are a lot of people who can only afford to buy third-rate meat at Walmart. And, um, you know, so... What do we do about that? Well, we also have to start paying people more. We have to give them a living wage so they can actually afford to buy decent food. So uh, let's take some of the, going back to the article, the, 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 the letter you wrote to the presidential candidates um, and the three areas you ended that letter in, that, that you ended the letter with, um, and how to get to where you think we should be in terms of agriculture in America. We'll take them one by one. Let's talk about resolarizing the American farm and what that means. Yeah, I started on the farm. Um, and even though I think that a lot of these decisions could be driven, you know, on the consumer side too. And I talked about a new set of subsidies. And, you know, I've, I've talked about a few of these points already in this hour. But um, basically rewarding farmers for diversifying. Um, I've talked about um, – Getting animals back on farms, that's really, really important um, because once you have animals on farms, you have less need for fertility. You know, you have this, this, this very virtuous circle where the animals eat the crop wastes and provide a source of fertility to the plants. Uh, Wendell Berry said famously, when you take animals off of farms, you take a, a, this elegant solution 
um, and divide it neatly into two problems, uh, which is to say a pollution problem on the feedlot because no longer are you using – you have a use for all those uh, – all that manure – and a fertility problem back on the farm, which you have to remedy with chemical fertilizers. So if you can get animals back on farms, you can make farms much more sustainable. Now, how do you do that? I'm not saying you ban feedlot agriculture, but I am saying you remove some of the artificial supports we give them. You say, well, no more human antibiotics in livestock production unless the animal is sick. In other words, no more routine use. You can't put it in the feed anymore. On what basis are you doing that? Public health. Public health crisis. We only have so many good antibiotics left. It turns out to be very hard to invent new ones. And we are uh, going to lose them. Um, we're already seeing this. You know, the, the, com the community-acquired staph infections that's, that's you know, a, a scourge all over the Midwest right now. It kills more people than AIDS every year. This is a disease that has been traced to hog confinement farms. And the antibiotics to which this disease is resistant are precisely the ones that we've been feeding to our hogs. So that is something we simply can't afford as a society. So no more antibiotics. That suddenly changes by itself the, um, the economics of, of doing feedlots because suddenly you've got to give the, the, the animals more space less stress. You have to give them uh, a better diet. You have to give them, um, you know, things like grass if they're cows to keep them healthy. Um, so that, you know, so you see you attack that problem on that side. You also begin regulating feedlots. That's very important. Basically, we have been giving a free pass under the Clean Air and the Clean Water Act to uh, farms, so-called. Feedlots have gotten themselves defined as farms, so they come under that, and they're essentially not being regulated. A city producing as much waste as a, as a you know, a, a, a cattle feedlot, let's say, um, has to put in a water treatment system, has to comply with the Clean Water Act, and everyone understands that. No one has a problem with that anymore. Well, why does a, uh, an animal operation that's producing more waste not have to do anything with their waste? Uh, so you need to simply, you know, use the laws that are on the books to regulate these things as cities, which is what they are. So those are two things you can do. And, and if you do those two things and obviously cut down on the subsidized grain um, that supports them, you have taken away the three struts of, of intense animal agriculture. And suddenly it will become profitable for farmers to grow some of their own meat. And it will be better meat and they will have more sustainable farms. So those are the kinds of things to do down on the farm. Maybe we need less meat then. And all that also fits into the, 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 the battle over the farm bill within the next four years. That's oh, yeah. Those are those, those, some of those things you can address in the farm bill. Some of them, though, by the way, you can address right now. The EPA has the laws it needs to enforce um, some sanity on waste in feedlots. They simply have to resolve to... In for, you know, to apply the laws that have already been passed. That's interesting. So, and very quickly, we, 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 one of the big issues here is another one of your issues. One of the issues in this mid-Atlantic region is a whole movement towards regionalizing the food system. That, well, there, yeah, and and that's I think that's vitally important. And that's that's part two is how do you change the food economies to support these farmers who want to diversify. And there, you know, I talked earlier about local procurement. Um, I think you you start with using the government's power. Uh, purchasing power. And in the same way, you know, there are rules now that if you're, you know, you have a government contract, you have a certain number of your subcontractors, say, have to be minorities. 
uh, or you have to spend a certain number of, uh, you know, a certain amount of money if you're building a public building on art. We use government procurement to advance social goals we think are important. Well, if we've decided that the social goal of local agriculture and revitalizing our, you know, these regions is important, then let us say that 2% of all that food procurement money being spent by prisons and hospitals and um, uh, military bases and schools, most notably schools, should go to local food production. Um, that I think is the most important thing we can do on the on the marketing side. Interesting enough, um, when you if you if you if in Baltimore there's the new director of the Baltimore City Public School System, who is and of the food system within city schools, is doing just that. He's revolutionizing the way that students eat and how they get their food. Well, that is so important. You know, the the longer I work on this issue, I, I really think the schools are the key. And the reason is, I mean, for three different reasons. Uh, one is the, the amount of food they purchase. It's tremendous. And right now, by and large, they're, they're buying surplus uh, or they're being given surplus agricultural commodities. You know, the food that the government can't get rid of is ending up – we're using our kids as a disposal system. Um, so there's a lot of – but there's also a lot of purchasing power there that could support local food. It then would have a health effect on, on the children, which would be – uh, incredibly, you know, useful to our society. I mean, spending more on school lunch is a down payment on solving the health care crisis. I mean, that's how we have to look at it. It's an investment. It is not an expenditure. It is an investment. Um, and then the other, the other way that this helps, though, is that uh, the cultural piece. We need, yeah, we need to teach kids how to grow food. That's why we need gardens in the school to reconnect them with the source of their food. And that, by the way, is how kids discover vegetables, when they pick them themselves and taste them right out of the garden. We need to teach them how to cook because this is a critically important life skill that too many of us lack. And and this is going to sound a little weird. We need to teach them how to eat. Now, that might sound like the nanny state, teaching kids how to eat. But we have to keep in mind we are already teaching them how to eat. When you serve a kid chicken nuggets and tater tots and give them 10 minutes to eat them in, you are teaching them how to be a fast food junkie. It, it's ins- I mean, that, it's, it, that's absolute insanity. I mean, if you t- – I'll tell you a story that, that you'll, you'll, I think, relate to. Here in Baltimore, the new head of our food service system is just an amazing guy, the Raging Cajun. And why am I blocking on his name? Of course, I would be in the middle of my interview blocking on his name, but it will come to me in a minute. So, but, but he – I remember when he first got here. He took kids from the inner city out and he got these baskets of local peaches and gave the kids peaches. Not a kid in that room, a kid in that, in, in that room from that school had ever in their entire lives eaten a peach. Wow. The only peach they'd ever seen was in some can full of syrup. It's incredible. So it's kind of this revolutionary way of changing the way kids eat, learning how to grow it themselves. He's created – the kids now are going to be cooking all the food in the schools for the rest of the schools. Um, I've got to check this out. It's a great story. Forcing great people – oh, it's a great story. Forcing pizza contractors to – if you say, if you don't give us whole wheat pizza and change the – and make them natural and local ingredients, we're going to stop buying your pizza for the kids. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an amazing – Well, he's amazing got the story. right idea. There is – you know, you drive so much change there. You're driving a cultural change in the kids because they will become – people who know how to cook and people who know how to eat. 
And the best way to get kids to eat, you know, fresh produce is is to let them taste it at its best. You know, um, up in Maine, Elliot Coleman is, is, you know, one of our great farmers in this country. He's very innovative. And he grows produce uh, under glass, unheated greenhouses. And he grows the sweetest carrots I have ever tasted. I mean, they're really extraordinary. And his carrots are the uh, currency in among, you know how kids trade stuff in their school lunch? Mm-hmm. Well, his carrots, you know, are worth more than the Twinkies, okay? It's what the kids trade for because they're really good. And and part of it is, you know, you put quality in front of people and they will – they'll go for it. And and we're not doing that right now, certainly with school lunch. You asked me his name. It's Tony Gerasi. And he actually lived in your area for a long time. I think he owned the first – in the Bay Area, he, he owned the first uh, Cajun restaurant in – in the Bay Area for a long time, moved back to Vermont. Then we brought him here to Baltimore, and and he's kind of turned everything upside down. They've even with, in Baltimore County have started their own farm, and and so there's I mean that everything you're talking about in your books, part of what has to happen it seems to me as we close this out is that and and is is when you when you write about re regionalizing the food system. Is to, is the fact that it, the, the strongest way to do this is by doing it from the ground up in local communities that then begin to change the consciousness of the way people think that could then maybe affect the farm bill in 2012. Well, that's right. You have to create models and show that they work. And the next step, you know, that I would – if I met Tony, I would say, you know, once you've got this thing in place and going, how about doing some uh, little empirical research? And let's see what's happened to discipline and uh, attentiveness and test scores in the afternoon after kids have had the kind of meal you're cooking them. I'm going to bet you that they're vastly improved because you cannot give boys uh, shots of sugar and fat at lunch <laughs> and expect them to, to sit in the math class in the afternoon. It, I, I know I know how this works. It's and ridiculous. That this healthy food is also a down payment on better school performance, I am convinced. We're talking – we've been talking with Michael Pollan. Uh, he wrote the book The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals and In Defensive Food and Eater's Manifesto. You can Google him on the web and see all of his other articles there. Um, and it's been a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Once again, Michael Pollan, thanks so much for your work and uh, for the conversation you're just starting among us. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer is Andre Melton. To hear this show again, podcast past shows, and find out information about our guests and the work they do, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. And you can also listen to and download our podcast on iTunes. For Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.